Good evening. It's my privilege to welcome you this evening to the annual Martin Luther King Jr. Lecture sponsored by the Association of Black Seminarians. Since I always forget to say this, I'm going to say it at the very beginning. There will be a reception following this event in the main lounge of the Mackay Campus Center, which you are all welcome to attend. This evening, we are honored to have the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III as our speaker. Dr. Moss is the senior pastor of the Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago. He's an honor graduate of Morehouse College. He holds an MDiv from Yale Divinity School and a doctorate of ministry from the Chicago Theological Seminary. His most recent book is entitled Blue Note Preaching in a Post-Soul World, Finding Hope in an Age of Despair. This was the subject of his Lyman Beecher lectures at Yale Divinity School in 2014. His other books include Redemption in a Red Light District and The Gospel According to the Wiz and Preach, The Power and Purpose Behind Our Praise, which he wrote with his father, the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss, Jr. As these titles suggest, Dr. Moss is particularly gifted in drawing connections between culture, life, and faith. He is a renowned preacher who understands the power of timely, relevant language. And he also knows that the gospel is more about more than words. Dr. Moss's ministry is built upon social justice advocacy and community engagement. Amen. He has drawn attention to issues of mass incarceration, environmental justice, and income inequality. We are honored to have him with us this evening. Dr. Moss's lecture is entitled, Stay Woke, Remaining Conscious in an Unconscious World. Will you please join me in welcoming Dr. Otis Moss III. my privilege and my honor to have this opportunity to be on this uh, campus. And President Barnes, I thank you so very much for the invitation, uh, for the kindness and the hospitality. I uh, just had a tremendous uh, dinner speaking uh, with the Association of Black Seminarians. We had a wonderful discussion, uh, everything uh, from liberation theology to the Black Panther. And uh, it was a delight to have that conversation today. And I want to thank uh, Justin, who picked me up from uh, the Newark airport, uh, even though there was a lot of construction going on, uh, was able to find me as I was lost, uh, walking through the airport, and uh, made our way here. So it is just an absolute delight. And I cannot tell you how excited I have been uh, to have uh, this opportunity. We were originally supposed to be uh, here last year, and the snow said no, and and just so glad to be here and to uh, to get a break from Chicago. Uh, 
the weather in Chicago is not as beautiful right now as it is here in New Jersey. Uh, we had a foot and a half of snow that just dropped on us uh, a few days ago, uh, but uh, it is good to see the ground again. Um, so it is just a delight. And so I want to thank you uh, for all of this, the student body here and the faculty and the staff here uh, at Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, as was stated, uh, what, what I would like to do for the few moments that we have together is to talk about this idea, this theme of stay woke, uh, remaining conscious in, in an unconscious world. Uh, this terminology that has been used uh, over and over again uh, that is not just solely uh, rhetoric, but I think speaks to a moment that we find ourselves in nationally and even globally, uh, that we must be people who are willing to be conscious uh, in a world that seems to be falling asleep or that there are forces uh, rocking people to sleep uh, so that they are not aware of what is happening in the world. I begin by telling a story, uh, a story that has been passed down from mouth uh, to ear uh, among the Palmetto tra Trails of South Carolina, better known as the Low Country in South Carolina. Uh, it is a mythic tale that has been passed down from mouth to ear on a place known as St. John's Island, uh, the Gullah Islands to be specific, a tale that was born in the nostalgic hyperbole rooted and fertilized in the souls of displaced transatlantic Africans. No one knows the exact origin of the tale, Kevin. Uh, the details seem to differ depending upon the writer or the teller. But the meaning always remains the same. The tale was forged somewhere between the wisdom of West Africa and the tragedy of American slavery. It is the story of the people who could fly. The tale begins in the island of St. John as displaced Africans who had been mislabeled as slaves, toiled in the hot sun under the devious and watchful eye of a nameless slave driver. Among this group of coffee, black, mocha, brown, caramel-colored people was a woman tending her child as she was picking cotton. She had such incredible physical dexterity that she could pick cotton with her right hand and also caress her child's cheek with her left hand. And there she was in, uh, in the field, picking cotton with one hand, tending to her child with the other. And as she was picking cotton, she became exhausted from the pressure of working in the humid conditions. And when her body gave out, in the words of Du Bois, it was probably the weight of being a problem and property at the same time. Her strong yet frail body simply collapsed under the weight of working up, waking up every day and having to face the tragedy and the absurdity of a people who claimed to be Christian but always lived in contradiction. This woman, this nameless woman, fell to the ground and her boy, could have been no more than six or seven, attempted to wake her mother, wake his mother. Uh, not knowing that if she did not get back to work, that there would be punishment that would be swift and hard. She said, Mama, 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 please wake up. And as he is shaking the mother, there is that nameless slave driver who looks upon uh, the horizon of this cotton field and sees that there has been work stoppage in one of the areas. He climbs upon his beast of burden, 
to make sure that he would get there in time uh, to punish her for stopping work. But before this slave driver made his way over to the woman, there was another man who made his way over to the woman who had fallen uh, beneath the cotton. His name was the preacher, uh, but those who were in power called him the old devil. This preacher, who had been mistakenly called Old Devil, uh, looked at the child, and the child looked at him, and the little boy said, is it time? And he said, yes, it is. He looked over at the woman, bent down, and offered one simple word, a phrase, into her ear. He said, kuliba, and then said kuliba to the little boy. And it seemed as if the word literally entered into the ear and landed upon her soul. Because all of a sudden her eyes opened up, she stood up. But when she fell from exhaustion, she went down an enslaved African. But when she stood up, she stood up as if she was a queen. She stood up and began to look around, and then her little boy looked around as if he was royalty. They grasped hands together, and they began to fly. And as they flew in the, in the midst of that moment, those slave drivers who were making their way over to the woman uh, were all of a sudden confused, a cognitive dissident. They could not understand seeing an African taking flight. And at that moment, uh, while there was confusion among the slave drivers, uh, the preacher went to each and every one of the enslaved Africans and kept saying the same word over and over again, kuliba, 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 kuliba. And then one by one, each African started taking flight. Okay, can you imagine the sight? The dehumanized flying, three-fifths of a person flying. The disenfranchised flying, the disempowered flying, the dismembered flying, all of them taking flight, leaving their oppression, going to a place that we do not even know. And as the slave drivers made their way over, there was only one African left. He was the preacher they called Old Devil. They grabbed him and they shook him and then beat him and said, we need you to call them back. He said, I can't. He said, why not? He said, once the word is in them, it will never leave them. And so they beat him within an inch of his life, uh, but he just simply smiled and said that there's a word in them now. They will never operate off the labels that you have given them. They will fly back to places that you cannot even imagine. And this word, this word kuliba, born in West Africa, just means God in you and God with you. A story that has been passed down from mouth to ear, from generation to generation. And if we want to see this uh, world, this generation, if we desire uh, to see people take flight, the task of the preacher is to wrestle with a kuliba word. The task of the preacher is to wrestle with these moments. And in this moment where there seems to be such unconsciousness in America, what is the task of the preacher who is occupying a space in theological and cultural cathedrals called the church? The task I submit to you is to, wake, to awaken the spiritual consciousness and disturb the sleep of catatonic ecclesiastical councils. 
In other words, to insert with the cultural terminology, we must be able to allow people to stay woke. This is not a simple phrase I give to you, a rhetoric rooted in the broad brush critique. No, this is the essence of the cultural theology of people of African descent who've attempted to awaken the very democracy of a nation claiming liberty but still living a lie. James Baldwin said it this way, Thomas Paine saying, give me liberty or give me death is beautiful until the ears of America hear it pronounced from someone kissed by nature's son. This challenge our nation faces is not new, but a refusal to come to grips with one of our uh, most dangerous and uh, destructive legacies. James Madison says America's original sin is the idea of race. And Thomas Jefferson claimed, even in his melanin-phobic contradiction of disregard of people of color and his deep, his deep physical desire for the same people, even said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and we know the contradiction we live. What does the religious narrative of people of African descent have to say to us in this day and age? Well, if we are to understand this, we have a tradition, I believe, a tradition within those of African descent who recognize and understand the weaponization of history and the danger of toxic theology. It was in 1619, before Princeton was established in 1636, 20 people of color came as indentured servants. A record show an African man by the name of Antonio married a woman by the name of Mary, that after they finished their servitude, they were able to amass 250 acres of land in Virginia and also in Maryland. Uh, here you have, they did not have the burden of race, it was the burden of class they were dealing with. But, but something eventually happened in 1635. Uh, in 1635, we begin the transatlantic slave trade. And as a result of that, all of a sudden, a myth was, was entered into the American psyche. When someone realized that there was economic profitability uh, as a result of taking people from one country, then somebody decided to pass uh, some political uh, laws in order to make it acceptable. And then you had theological approval. That first you have economic profitability, then political acceptability, and then finally the tail light is theological approval. This is uh, uh, the break in American history. Our institutions became tainted by a poisonous lie called the narrative of difference or the racialized imagination. An intellectual virus was created, and history and theology became the chief sources of this transmission. Africans were non-humans, according to this idea, uh, in order to contribute to the world. Uh, they had no contributions to the world. Uh, Dr. Reginald Williams in McCormick Theological says it this way. It's the epistemology, uh, epistemological violence of the black body that its very being, its very color has evil encased upon it. Theologically and biblically, literally written out of the record. And the creation of a myth 
uh, the world had never encountered known as whiteness. Antonio and Mary never encountered any white people. They encountered ethnic groups, people from different places. Whiteness is something new to the world. And no one from America goes uh, to Europe and they say, hello, white people. They say they want to know your last name. They, they want to know what ethnicity are you. But the idea of having people of African descent, someone, in the words of uh, David Rodiger, there had to be a wage connected to this. So a new myth was created, that mythos, that social construction we know as race. There's no longer ethnicity, it's race. And then the Bible even becomes white and a theology of mission is designed to save those who are lost. Uh, please don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Please do not uh, miss this. Uh, that in many ways that we have as a result of what happened in the latter 1600s, that the idea of calling someone uh, uh, the Negro or the N-word did not appear in American literature into the latter portion of the 1700s. People were referred to as African or people were referred as their ethnicity as the transatlantic slave trade began to uh, build profits. All of a sudden, a myth needed to be created. And as a result of that myth, that myth crept into our theology and even our biblical interpretation, where people of color were even written out of the Bible. Somehow Egypt got lifted out of Africa, <laughs> moved to the Middle East, the Middle East of what? East of what side? Trying to figure it out, lift it up. C can you imagine? If, in fact, we began to view those within the biblical narrative uh, as a variety of colors instead of just Charlton Heston and a few other individuals who have played these characters, that Egypt leaves Africa and the Garden of Eden no longer is in Ethiopia all the way up to the Tigris and Euphrates. It floats in the sphere of nowhere. Can you imagine if Abraham, uh, in our imagination, looked more like Frederick Douglass and Hagar and Sarah looked like Viola Davis and Octavia Spencer? The way that we would envision each other would be radically different. But the price of tasting the poison of a racialized imagination creates a hierarchy and it weaponizes our history where history for one group is a history of achievement, for another group, I don't know what you did because it has been weaponized. But a weaponized history leads to a toxic theology. Uh, the deep personal piety in the 1700s, individual salvation served the market and supported the empire. I want to save you individually and save your soul. I have no concern for your body or your mind. So you can stay enslaved. Uh, you can stay in your condition because I'm concerned about you individually and concerned about only your soul and not your body, your mind, or your conditions. The word righteousness becomes about personal righteousness and not justice. 
Uh, it becomes about individual private function, not a function of just relationship or community. Privatization of faith dares not critique the status quo and review, views Jesus only as a personal savior. No longer a messiah, a liberator, a nonviolent spiritual revolutionary, Jesus is sanitized and never enters the public sector. So you can holler on Sunday and cause hell all you want on Monday because there is no congruency with one's faith and what happens in the world. The preacher, in order to stay woke in all of this, I would say has to reclaim uh, the blue note narrative or reclaim the blues. The preacher uh, has a word, a coolie word, that is the antidote to this weaponized history and toxic theology. Blues, yes, blues. I'm not talking about just the music, but the theological and spiritual narrative embedded in blues speech. This is not just a song, but a theology strong enough to fight against the tithe of inhumanity thrust upon the shoulders of women and men trafficked as human cargo. It is the ability to preach about tragedy and not fall into despair. The willingness to uh, face tragedy. Or better yet, sonically, it happens embedded. This embedded theology is when people even sing the blues. But I'm not just talking about singing, but the embedding of this speech and the uh, theology that is rooted in this. There was a song by T-Bone Walker. Uh, maybe a few may know it. it I used to hear my father say it. It's called Stormy Monday. They call it Stormy Monday, but Tuesday's just as bad. Wednesday's worse, but Thursday's oh so sad. Uh, uh, Friday, the eagle flies, and on Saturday, I go out to play. But on Sunday, you will find me in church on my knees to pray. And what T-Bone Walker was simply trying to say is that there is a congruency, that there is no separation between sacred and secular, that my stormy Monday is also deeply connected to my worship and my connection with God. And when one has this, this blue note narrative, when one has this ability to be able to see the world differently and be able to face tragedy and not fall into despair, you truly can stay woke. How does one stay woke? I would remind you of uh, one of the great people that has been uh, uh, marginalized in history, a gentleman by the name of Robert Smalls, uh, one of the great individuals in America that no one talks about. Robert Smalls his, and his wife, Hannah, his daughter, Elizabeth, his infant son, Robert Jr., and stepdaughter, Clara, along with 11 other enslaved African men and women, decided to do the impossible in 1862. They made a decision rooted in the ancestral song of their ancestors. Before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to be with my Lord. Small was the leader of a small group of people that got together and decided to do the impossible. What people who had antebellum rhetoric believed that people kissed by nature's son could not do. They decided that they were going to steal a Confederate warship in Charleston, South Carolina. That they would take that warship, sail out of the harbor of Charleston, and make their way into free territory. They planned uh, meticulously, and as went under the cover of darkness, they boarded a ship. 
And all of the men brought uh, their wives and their children to say that we are going to sail to freedom. Because they had been working as servants, and as they had been working as servants, they were also taking notes mentally how to navigate and what were the appropriate codes to give in order to get out of the harbor because this was during the Civil War. And there were already orders given in the Charleston Harbor as a result of the Union Army having a blockade around this area that any ship that leaves the harbor doesn't know the codes, is not uh, sailing in the correct, uh, correct way, is to be blown out of the water. And so they donned their Confederate uh, outfits under the cover of darkness. They put uh, the person who had the lightest skin at the bow of the boat with all of the things to, uh, to signal the harbor. And as they sailed out, they came to the harbor master and they gave the signals. They made checkpoint one. But they then continued past Fort Sumter. And Fort Sumter's guns were trained on Robert Small's ship. It was called the Planter. But they gave the correct signals and codes. They made it past Fort Sumter. They made their way into the bay, still under the cover of darkness, moving into Union territory, but they were not yet free. When they made their way into Union territory, there was a warship entitled the Onward that was upon the horizon. It was still under the cover of darkness. They quickly thought it was Robert Small's wife who made the decision that if we take some tablecloths, tear them up, and then we take down the Confederate flag and run up a white flag, then maybe they will not blow us out of the water. But it was still under the cover of darkness. Every Union soldier and every naval officer had been given orders, if you see a Confederate vessel, destroy it. The XO told all of uh, those who manned the cannons uh, to focus their attention on this oncoming ship. It was still under the cover of darkness. They could not see a flag. Uh, they could not see the person on the bow who was waving. And they were ready at that moment to blow the ship out of water. But as if on cue in a movie, God allowed the sun to come up at the right time. And the sun came across the planter, and they realized they, see, they saw a white flag saying surrender. And then they told those, uh, as they shouted from the ship, do not move, we are going to board you. And when the Union soldiers boarded this ship, they witnessed something that they had never seen in their life. They stepped on the ship, and they didn't see anybody white on the ship. <laughs> there were nothing but black people on the ship. And Robert Smalls stepped out and said, I am Robert Smalls. I give this ship to the Union Army as a gift to Abraham Lincoln. We are now free. But it did not stop there. Robert Smalls then went on uh, to be a captain in the Union Army. Did not stop there. He then moved back to South Carolina, had amassed enough money, and bought the plantation where he was a slave. But didn't stop there. He even took the widow of the slave owner and allowed her to live on the plantation. Not in the big house, in a house in the back. <laughs> but it did not stop there. He started four schools uh, for children kissed by nature's son, but did not stop there. He decided that he would run for Congress, and he won. 
Robert Smalls, when they interviewed him, they said, what gave you the power to do this? He said that I recognize that when I heard about the God the slave master was talking about, I said, that's not my God. I don't know that God he's talking about. The God I know is from Luke 4, 18, that speaks about the oppressed and the poor and those who have been captive. And he said, I went down the list and I realized I fit every one, so Jesus was talking about me. It's the power of this different narrative that Robert Smalls was saying you got to stay woke. If in 1862, without the resources of a Princeton, he could capture a Confederate warship, what can we do in the 21st century with all of our resources? If we are willing to stay woke, that we understand that there is an antidote when we choose to claim and to reclaim the blue note of not only preaching, but being willing to face the blues in this world, to look at the historical blues of race and look at the biblical blues that, that we have witnessed throughout the Bible and the refusal of so many preachers to face the biblical blues. It's amazing to me that uh, we love to, uh, in many ways, sanitize all of the biblical characters lift them up and just say, aren't they so saintly? I said, when are we going to face the blues so that people can reclaim uh, the blues and be able to face them in a powerful way? Because here is the thing, blues is the basis of gospel music. You can't have gospel unless you know the blues. So before you get to your gospel shout, you better walk by the blues in order to reach uh, that moment of eschatological joy. Uh, that you cannot give up on the existential pain that we deal with. And David is an example of that, of how many preachers have refused to deal with his story in a unique way. That David, I have issues with him. I really have issues with David. I preach on David every year, but I preach not David. I preach about his children and one child in particular by the name of Tamar. That nobody wants to deal with Tamar and we want to frame her as a victim or we simply uh, want to just completely disregard this text completely. But, but I, I, I have great love for Tamar because Tamar attends my church. Tamar has experienced that kind of pain, but we always want to frame it within the male-centered piece, but you must understand the womanist ethic written within Tamar of what Tamar does so powerfully that when David is silent about her violation and when her own brother Absalom says, be quiet about the violation, what does she do? She says, I'll reclaim my voice. I'll put on sackcloth and ashes. In other words, I will tell everybody me too in this community. As a result of being able to do that, she lets everybody else know that not as all, all is not right in the palace and in my own sanctified imagination. I imagine Tamar wearing her sackcloth and ashes, but I see that there are women all across the kingdom who have donned their sackcloth and ashes also to say me too. When we choose to face the blues, we give people an opportunity to deal with their pain, but at the same time, they can also connect with the power of the Spirit. But we must be willing to face the historical blues. We must be willing to face uh, the biblical blues. We must be willing to face the theological blues. 
everybody, especially in certain traditions, they love Sunday, especially within the African-American tradition, people will get you on Sunday to talk about he died on Friday, but early on Sunday morning. They, they, they love to go there. I have no problem with someone going there. I go there very often. But the thing is, is that there has been a removal of Calvary from the conversation. That there has been a removal from the pain. There's been a removal of the blues because we want to get to resurrection. And the problem uh, with resurrection, uh, when you only focus on resurrection, it tips you into an individualized and prosperity type of theology. Because when your theology has no blues, it's not possible for you to sing gospel. Let me explain it, because it is Thomas Dorsey who is the father of gospel music. But before he penned gospel songs, they called him Georgia Tom. He was a blues musician down in Georgia, playing blues music. And then he connected with a woman from New Orleans who made her way up to Chicago by the name of Mahalia Jackson. And the day that Thomas Dorsey lost his wife and his child in a tragic accident, it was that moment at midnight in his blues where he took pen and dipped and wrote on paper a song called Precious Lord, Take My Hand. And it was Mahalia Jackson who uh, lifted that song up powerfully. Uh, but one must understand this idea of blues. Uh, that you cannot have a gospel unless you are connected to the blues. And there is a refusal in American ecclesiastical circles to talk about the blues. People want to be happy. We want our best life right now. We want to deal with what's so good and makes us feel good. But if we are to alter where we are going as a nation, we must be willing to face these things. It is James Baldwin who says it this way, I paraphrase, that nothing that is faced, that is not faced, can change. But you can't change anything unless you face it. And this is the call of this blue narrative uh, that we are called to, these historical blues, the theological blues, but also uh, these uh, theological and biblical blues. And the question becomes, well, okay, I've got all of this blues. I got the blues. How, how do we have good news? You've got to merge the two, merging the blues and the gospel. Let me see if I can explain it. You see, if we are to stay woke, we not only must have reclaim the blues, but we also must reclaim a jazz ethic. Is it a jazz ethic? What do you mean? You must understand that you can't play jazz unless you know the blues. As a matter of fact, it is the rule of jazz. As a matter of fact, you can't have gospel without the blues. And as a matter of fact, you can't have R&B unless you got some rhythm and some blues. You can't have hip hop because the grandmother of hip hop is the blues. And when we have that blues-centric piece and we have a jazz narrative, something new comes about in the world. What is this jazz narrative? What does it mean? Well, let me break it down so you understand what I'm trying to say. Uh, that if jazz is a music that is unique and it comes out of the American context, no other music is as unique and brings together so many different elements. The jazz is born in New Orleans. As a matter of fact, uh, that's why I'm bothered by those who call certain countries manure holes. 
Because uh, I come from Chicago, if I may stop parenthetically, it was founded by a person by the name of John DuSable, who was a Haitian immigrant. But you must understand that uh, those who immigrated to, uh, to Haiti, those who immigrated to New Orleans, it is because of Haiti that we have New Orleans. If it had not been for Toussaint L'Ouverture defeating uh, the person by the name of Napoleon, as a result, France was now in $40 million debt. In order to get that debt off the record, they had to sell a piece of property known as the Louisiana property, which became the Louisiana Purchase. As a result of the Louisiana Purchase, we ended up with something better known as New Orleans. When the Haitians began to migrate into New Orleans, they worked with Native American, those who spoke Spanish and German and French, and were able to create new sounds that we call today as, uh, that we call today as jazz. So in other words, if there was no Haiti, there would be no Louisiana. If there was no Louisiana, there would be no New Orleans. If there was no New Orleans, there would be no jazz. If there was no jazz, there would be no Louis Armstrong. If there was no Louis Armstrong, there would be no Miles Davis. If there was no Miles Davis, there would be no Dizzy Gillespie. If there was no Dizzy Gillespie, there wouldn't be a Wynton Marcellus. If there wasn't a Wynton Marcellus, there would be no Trombone Shorty. If there was no Trombone Shorty, he wouldn't play with Kendrick Lamar, and you would not say, be humble, sit down. And so one must understand that there is a deep connection between all of these things. And jazz music is unique because jazz music does something that no other tradition does. It teaches us how to live in a democracy. How does it teach us how to live in a democracy? Because in jazz music is the only music that allows you to solo. In other words, you can bring your unique narrative. You don't have to sound like anybody else, but you can bring something new to the table. And what I love about a jazz band is you never hear the drum set telling the bass, you gotta sound like me, or the bass telling the trumpet, you gotta sound like me, or the trumpet telling the saxophone, you must sound like me, or the piano telling the saxophone, you must sound like me. All of these instruments should not play together. For it is the saxophone that comes out of a marching band, the piano, which is classical and European. It is the trap drum set that is using African polyrhythms. And then the bass that is to be played with a bow is now being played with fingers. But as a result of coming into this gumbo of a jazz ethic, all of a sudden, everybody has the right to solo. And I believe if America is to be America, we need to learn a jazz ethic that everybody has a right to solo. You can bring something to the table in the process. Process. And that is the beauty about jazz. If we are to stay woke in this 21st century moment and recognize that there is great power when we use that jazz narrative. And it sometimes bothers and annoys some people that jazz does something so beautiful and brilliant that it allows you to solo, but it also allows you to bring the spirit of improvisation. The spirit of improvisation, that doesn't mean that no preparation. There's a difference between no preparation, that's just called foolishness. <laughs> uh, but improvisation is connected to preparation. You prepare so much that when something happens, a moment historically happens that you were not expecting. You have worked the chords and the keys and the scales so much that you can make the shift. It is one of my favorite musicians by the name of Wynton Marcellus who did this in a concert in New York. He was having a very struggling time at one period artistically, and he was playing this concert, and as he was playing the song, uh, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance, he was trying to work the solo in a unique way. And everybody was listening intently to Marcellus in the solo. He was doing something beautiful, doing something unique, but then somebody forgot to turn off their cell phones. 
in the midst of this small space, you heard the cell phone go off. And one of the music critics who was there present at that moment wrote down on a napkin, magic ruined. But then Marcellus paused for a moment. And Marcellus, as if the spirit possessed him at that moment, then began to play his trumpet at the exact same tone of the cell phone and began to use the tone of the cell phone and move it into his solo. Then came all the way back down and then say, I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. The music critic said it was one of the greatest solos he has ever heard in his life because when history threw something he didn't expect, he paused in that moment because he was already prepared with a narrative and a jazz ethic. And though history has thrown something in America, we do not expect. I'm here to let you know if we are prepared appropriately, we have a jazz ethic and improvisation that can expand and change things in America. I'm here to let you know if we are to stay woke, do not fall into despair. Do not hang your head and say, look at this moment, you have great power just like a Robert Smalls and the power of a Wynton Marcellus. I stopped by here at Princeton to simply say somebody needs to stay woke. Use your jazz narrative. Use the skills that you have been given so that we can see transformation in this community. Kuliba, 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 stay woke. <laughs>